Um, always sad to see so many people go when after the Shawnee State graduation and we said goodbye to a lot of people last week who have been at Revolution from the very beginning and uh, just pray for them um, that they would continue to be faithful. It's been really cool to watch people who, who just showed up here on a, on a Sunday night um, like three years ago um, get to the point where people like Ray Noble and others who, who graduated and, and just, just to know that where they've come. I mean, I remember the first time meeting with some of them, they had no idea when I asked them what Christianity is all about. They're like, uh, God and something, you know, and that was pretty much their answer. And, and, and now they can, they can define the gospel for anyone, anywhere. And that's just a really cool thing. And so um, just continue to pray for them. Uh, a few announcements before we get going. Uh, we had to tear down some of the chairs over there. We needed to anyway because summer we always lose about half of our attendance um, when Shawnee breaks, but also um, because we had a huge leak over there, and you could probably smell it if you couldn't see it, right? It smells like a locker room in here, which we apologize for, but um, we'll try to fix that this week. But we are in search of a new building, our third in, th in four years, and so we're praying about some different options. Uh, we want to stay as close to downtown as we possibly can um, so that college students can reach us easily, so we continue to reach out to the east side. So keep that in prayer, please. Uh, when we were at the gym and we said we can't do this anymore, we had no idea where we were going to go. We thought it was hopeless. We prayed, and God gave us this place, which has been very good to us uh, for, more, you know, for, for more than two years now. And so we're praying again simply because the roof is old and it's not getting any better, and so we need a new location. Um, so keep that in prayer. A couple other things to pray about. Free market is coming up. Matter of fact, free market is coming up just like, what, two weeks from yesterday, right? So um, what we need is this. We need your extra stuff, good stuff, not junk. This is not the time to get rid of your garbage and give it to the poor. Um, free market is where we take our extra good stuff, the stuff we would give to friends and family members, friends and family members that we like, okay, and that we want to keep as friends and family members, and we give them our extra. When John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness and people come to him and he defines repentance, we're truly turning to God, one of the ways he defines that is if you have two coats, you give one of your coats to someone who doesn't have any. That's what repentance looks like. And so free market is our way of twice a year showing God that we have turned from our sin, turned from our selfishness. We're trying to give our extra to others, right? And so in a couple weeks, we will open um, these doors up. We will have taken down all the chairs. We'll set up clothing racks and tables. And we will open up to people who are homeless, people who, who are in need. And they can come in and they can get clothes and they can get toiletries and they can get whatever they need totally for free. That is our free market. Somebody's going to walk away with an awesome Led Zeppelin shirt from you-know-who, by the way. So um, that's in a, in, in a couple of weeks. So continue to bring your best in. You don't need all your clothes. 
You really don't. You need clothes. You don't need all of them, right? You don't need closets and closets full of them. So free market is coming up. The second East End house uh, will be launching soon. Eric Kimsey and Brady Carter will be moving into that house. Keep them in prayer. Keep that house in prayer. We're very close to launching that house. That house will be known as Gabriel's house, uh, named after Gabriel Myers, a young uh, man who died uh, in state care while his mother was in rehab. It's just um, a reminder of the destructiveness of addiction, uh, the darkness that comes with addiction, and how we have been called as revolution to go into that darkness and bring the light of Jesus Christ. So keep that in prayer as well. Uh, Starting next week, we will have a new sermon series that uh, Pastor Dave will be kicking off about the prophets. He'll be walking us through um, some of the prophets, and we'll be in the prophets for most of the summer. So keep that in prayer as well. And finally, something to keep in prayer is that the elders are kind of debating um, the future of revolution, not whether or not we keep doing it, but how we do it and how we help fund Sunday night. And so we're, we keep that in prayer. We'll be having a leadership meeting soon with all of our deacons and sitting down and discussing that. How do we do service so that we can keep doing what we're doing um, on Sunday nights, reaching out to the people we're reaching out to to continue the mission that God has given us? But tonight, uh, we're not doing a sermon. We're doing a Ask Pastor Matt, which is where you all have submitted questions, and I will do my best to answer them. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into that. Let's go. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will be with us tonight, um, especially me as I try to answer these questions that the people here have submitted. I ask that if I answer any question that dishonors you, that is not based in truth, that it will fall on deaf ears. But if I answer anything the way you want me to do it, that it will penetrate deep into their hearts and will help them come closer to you and serve you for your honor and your glory, which eternally is all that matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so you submitted the questions. I'm going to try to answer them tonight. There were, you like that? Uh, Katie Reed's work. Um, I wish I looked that young. Um, I'm starting to look old at 40. Um, Tonight, um, what happened was we had about 14 or 15 questions that came in all together. There's no way I can answer all those in 30 or 40 minutes. So I picked like the top seven, right, six or seven. I'll try to get to as many as I can. Understand that I went to seminary and then law school, right? So I speak on the inhale. um, And so I will try to be as brief as I can, but I can't promise you anything. And we'll get to as many as possible. And those we don't get to, you are always welcome to Facebook me, email me, text me, ask me questions. That's why I'm here. That's why Pastor Dave is here, is to help you grow closer to God. And one of the ways we do that is by helping to expound the scriptures and and kind of talk about what we're doing here. So let's get to question one. Let's pop that up if we've got it. um, And we will go there. Okay, this is actually, we had a couple different questions on this. And I saw kind of conflated it into one kind of question. You say once saved, always saved. And I will never leave you or forsake you. But what if you get saved and then go out and live the life you lived before? I know a person cannot live a sinless life, but using that as an excuse, will you still go to heaven? Well, you can't use that as an excuse and go to heaven. You can't just say, oh, God saved me. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, if I, you know, get drunk and gamble everything I have away and ignore my family and blah, 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 blah. You know, you can't use that as an excuse. But here's where we got to reel things in a little bit. We have to define what it means to be saved. 
And unfortunately, in the Western church, we have defined being saved as this. We go forward at some church or some church-sponsored event. We repeat the little prayer, right? And so maybe somebody, you know, puts it in your Bible or whatever, and all of a sudden you're saved. Absolutely, positively not true. You will not find that in the Scriptures anywhere. That is a device that came out of the late 19th, early 20th century by evangelists. I understand the thinking behind it. But just because a person says they are saved does not mean they are saved. Jesus is very clear, in fact. In the Gospel of Matthew, he stands up and he says that there will be some people who call me Lord, Lord, who stand up and do miracles in my name who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there will be people who not only call themselves Christians, but call themselves ministers of the gospel who will not get into heaven. So just because you call yourself a Christian, just because you go to church, just because you keep the rules, just because you do any of that does not mean you are saved. So let's clear that up first and foremost. That does not mean you are saved. So what does it mean to be saved? Well, let's take a look. Um, if you brought a Bible, go to the Gospel of John. That's where we we'll spend most of our time. If you've got one of the blue Bibles, which we've provided for you, which, by the way, um, those Bibles are yours for you to keep. If you do not have a Bible um, that you read regularly or you do not have a Bible you like, please take one of those. And if you'll go to, let's see here. Let's start on page 638 in John 3. And we'll start talking there. John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now he's talking to a Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asked, he says, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit... Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born by the Spirit. People are born again by the Spirit of God. People are not born again by their own guilt. People are not born again by their own desires. People are born by the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. It will not happen. I remember going to, when I was a kid and I grew up in church, and I remember going to um, work camp. Some of you have been to work camp. And this was in the 80s, right? And in the 80s, if you wanted Christian rock, you had Striper, Amy Grant... And Michael W. Smith. It was a dark, dark time. And Michael W. Smith had the song, Friends are friends forever, if the Lord's the Lord of them. Right? And so a song that literally makes the kind of music dentists play in their office sound hardcore. Right? And they would play that on the last night of work camp, and then they would make an altar call right when everybody was crying. 
Now that is emotional manipulation. That is not necessarily the work of the Holy Spirit. And so people would go forward after Michael W. Smith would play, and they would go forward, or they go to some, you know, they go to some backward church somewhere, you know, where they play just as I am 40 times or whatever, and they go forward, and everybody's crying and all that kind of stuff, and they think they've been saved. Not necessarily. Unless the Holy Spirit has moved, they have not been saved. You do not get to decide if you're in the kingdom of God. God decides that. And the Bible is very, very clear about that. Let's look at some more scripture. Let's go back to John. Go to 637, page 637 in the Blue Bibles. John 1, 13. Now he's talking about children of God, people who are truly born again. Verse 13. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. They are born not from their own plans, not from their own passions, but from God. It is God reaching out and grabbing a hold of you and saying, you are mine. That makes someone reborn. That makes someone saved. It is not the person himself saying, me, 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 me. People will go forward and claim to be saved for all kinds of reasons. Guilt, desire to belong to a community, go on and on. Fear of hell, that does not necessarily make them saved. The movement of the Holy Spirit and it alone makes a person saved. Let's stay in John and go to John 10. This is on, if you're in the Blue Bibles, there's in page 645. Let's go to John 10, verse 27 through 29. This is Jesus speaking. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. So is it possible to lose your salvation if no one can snatch you away from Jesus? For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. So if God gives Christians to Jesus and no one can take them out of Jesus' hand, how can you lose your salvation? Somebody explain that to me. Now, and here's why. Let's talk about God's perspective. So here's the mistake we make. When I hear the question, once saved, always saved, how is that possible? We are looking at it from a human perspective and not God's. Does God know the future? So does God know who's saved? Follow it through logically. If you go forward because of some manipulation or some guilt or... or go on, I mean, pick your reason. Some Freudian father, you know, need. Whatever, I don't care. And you go forward and you say you're a Christian. And then a week later, 
You're in the club with a bottle of bub, right? <laughs> you, 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 you just go do that. Do you think God is up there going, Oh, I thought I had him! Shoot! Ah! Got to start looking for someone else. Do you think God's doing that? No, God knew what you were going to do. God knows what's in your heart. God knows whether or not you truly love Him. God knows whether or not the Spirit is truly dwelling in you because as we saw, He sent it. So of course, if God knows you're saved, you're saved. Because God knows. And why would God, if He knows the future, if He knows the past, present, or future, why would He send the Holy Spirit to invade the heart and mind and soul of someone that was a waste of time? Does that make any sense? Exactly. And that's why, if you've been truly saved, because God has saved you, you're saved. Make sense? Next question. Do the best I can with these. There's a lot more I could go on that one, but that's a sermon in and of itself. But from an overview, that's how we are. Can you break multiple promises to God and still have salvation? I hope so. (laughs) Because if not, I'm in big trouble. Did Peter break a promise to, to Jesus himself? Peter's in hell? That ought to give you comfort, should it not? Who was the one who said, I will never, ever deny you? And then before the night was over, three times. Right? See, here's what you have to get about about salvation. And believe it or not, this sounds like it should ruin your Christian life, but it does the exact opposite. It's totally counterintuitive. Your salvation is not based on what you do. Your salvation is based upon what Jesus did. Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for every sin of every person who he saves. Jesus lived a perfect life to grant his perfect life to every person he saved. So that you are judged by Jesus' life. Your punishment is paid by Jesus on the cross. You are judged by His perfect life. So your punishment, no punishment if you've been saved. No judgment because you're based upon Jesus' life. It's all done by Jesus Christ. It is not based on your actions. Thank God. Could you imagine the anxiety? Some of you have had this anxiety, but I've had this anxiety. When I first you know, came to know God, started my relationship with God in 1997. After 25 years of living for me and me alone, when I came to Christ in 1997, for those first couple of years, I was totally and utterly anxiety-ridden because every time I sinned, I thought, Oh no, I'm going to hell! Do you know what I say now? Thank God you have forgiven me. Every time I sin, I know that Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin, that I am being judged by Jesus' life, not my own. And do you know the weird thing about that is? It makes you grateful. 
It makes you fall in love with God even more. And as a result, the more gratitude you have for God, the more love you have for God, the less you sin. It's totally counterintuitive, but it's how it works. Forgiveness should drive you to worship. Does that make sense? So we make promises to God all the time. I have been on airplanes. I fly a lot. And I have been on airplanes that I'm pretty sure were being piloted by people that were drunk and have no depth perception. I'm pretty sure before they became pilots for US Air, they ran those teacup rides at the county fair. Because it felt the same. And when you fly into Huntington with 40 mile per hour crosswinds, and you're doing this, and some idiot decides to start singing Leonard Skinner, <laughs> or scream, We Are Marshall, <laughs> you begin to make all kinds of promises to God you will never keep. And God knows you will never keep them. Thank God he forgives us anyway. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So that's what I got on that. Next. When someone in the army kills someone overseas, does that count as murder and when do you go to hell for that? Excellent question. Absolutely excellent question. Um, this has been a topic debated in the church for a long time. Now, in my personal opinion... Between the time the Apostle Paul was martyred and went to be with Jesus and the time of the Reformation when you had guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin pop up, in my opinion, between that time, in that 1,470-year period or whatever, the smartest person to cast a shadow in a church was a guy by the name of Augustine or Augustine if you're pretentious. Augustine wrestled with this question. And his answer, I think, was brilliant. He came up with what we now know as what's called the just war theory. And here's essentially what Augustine considered. Okay? If you've read the Old Testament, and then you've read the New Testament, without a lot of reflection, it looks like that God goes from being the Godfather to a hippie. In the Old Testament, he's like, what did you do? Smite you. Bam. Dead. In the New Testament, it's, give me a hug. On a 30,000 foot level, that's what it looks like. On a closer reading, that's not true. I was in a class where I served as a teaching assistant in seminary where a kid raised his hand and said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is harsh and random and violent. And the God of the New Testament is nice. And my professor said, if you read the book of Acts, there's these people named Ananias and Sapphira who would disagree with you. The student said, who? 
my professor said, ah, now I see our problem. We're arguing about a book only one of us has read. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira are two people in the book of Acts that pledge some money to the church. And then when they get a good deal on the land they sell, they try to keep some of the cash. And so God strikes both of them dead. This is the Jesus God striking people dead. God hasn't changed. And Augustine looked at this from Genesis to Revelation and said God doesn't change. God does not just grow up. God does not mature. God was perfect to begin with. So what are we to do with this? In the Old Testament when God says, mainly to nations like Israel, but also even to evil nations like Assyria and Babylon. You go, take your armies and go kill them. God says that. And then in the New Testament, you have his son out there in the field going, turn the other cheek. What are we to do with that? Now, it's important to remember that scripture has several levels. The first level is when the speaker is speaking to someone, you have to deal with the immediate historical context. When Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he's telling people to turn the other cheek, he is talking to people who cannot wait to rebel against the Roman Empire. That's one. And he is telling them on the surface level, don't do that, that's stupid. And when they did rebel against Rome and Rome flattened them, it verified his words that that was stupid. But on another level, Augustine said, there's a difference between nations and individuals. When one nation is doing something evil and another nation goes to stop that evil, like we did in World War II, Augustine would say, that's a good thing. Augustine would say, when a nation goes to stop the slaughter of Jews and gypsies and everything by, by the Nazis to stop the oppression by Japan of Korea and other places, that's a good thing. However, when individuals go dirty hairy, that's something else. Augustine's solution, looking at Genesis to Revelation, is this. As an individual, you are not to strike back. But nations may be called by God, to serve God and end evil. And the way nations do that is through armies. And armies are populated by soldiers who are called to do these things. In fact, when soldiers come to speak to John the Baptist and Jesus, they tell them many things. They never tell them to leave the army. And Jesus is not shy about telling people individuals to stop doing what they're doing. A rich man comes to him and he says, you need to give away everything you have. But when a soldier comes to him, he does not say, he does not go all Occupy Wall Street and start screaming. There is a difference between nations and individuals. Now, it doesn't mean that nations always act right. It does not mean that they are always just. Augustine, I could go on and on about Augustine's just war theory. But for now, I'm just going to leave it at this. As an individual, you may witness for Jesus Christ 
in a powerful way by taking a beating instead of inflicting one. But as a nation, we are often called to put a stop to evil and to do so through armed means. Make sense? Next question. Why don't you believe in the rapture? I was asked this twice in the last three weeks. Um, the easiest, here's the easiest answer, because it's not in the Bible. It's just not. Um, it popped up, it was basically a creation by a, a torqued off um, Anglican by the name of John Nelson Darby, who was a lawyer with absolutely no biblical training whatsoever. And Darby came up with the idea of a rapture. Uh, a, a Texas oil man liked his idea and printed it in a Bible called the Schofield Bible, and it became really popular. And it became really popular in the last 200 years. If you walked up to Augustine in the 5th century and said, do you believe in the rapture? He would say, what in the world are you talking about? This is a fairly new kid on the block. Now, where the rapture comes from is, if you want to turn to me, it's 1 Thessalonians 4. That's on page 715 of the Blue Bibles. We'll run through this really quick. What I believe in is this. I always believe that if you understand the culture and history behind a text and try to understand what the writer was doing to the original audience as well as understand the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you can nail this pretty well. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. This is where the rapture primarily comes from. Uh, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living, when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive will remain on earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we'll be in the Lord's forever. So encourage each other with these words. First of all, does it say anywhere, now look through that very carefully, does it say anywhere that they go to heaven? Anywhere in 15 to 18 does it say they go to heaven? It says they will meet the Lord in the air and we will be with him forever. That's all it says. It does not say they go to heaven. It does not say anything about a tribulation. It says nothing about Kirk Cameron movies. It says nothing about any of that. What's he talking about? If you were a king, and some of you have been around revol uh, revolution long enough know this. If you were a king in the first century, you were Caesar, and you would go to visit Thessalonica or Philippi or Ephesus, you would go, and then your ship would pull up to port. Your golden chariot would come out. You would have part of the army come out with you. You would go to about a mile outside of the city. They would blow trumpets to let the people know that you had arrived. And then everyone, everyone in the city would leave the city gates, march out a mile to meet the king, and then escort the king back into the city for a royal visit. So when the Thessalonians, who Paul wrote to, said that the king will come, there will be trumpets, and we will go up to meet the king, they assumed the next move would be what? Back into the city. It's not talking about a rapture. It's talking about the second coming. Jesus will return and he will rule on earth. And those of us who are faithful to him 
We'll meet him and escort him back in. But we don't go off in some secret rapture. I'm sorry, but if you've read the Left Behind books, they may be good science fiction, but quite frankly, they're stupid. Do you really think everyone on earth, after millions of Christians disappear, including on airplanes where, if you've seen the movie, even like the pacemakers fall into the seats, that they're going to go, wow, what a great trick. All oh, those cultists, they've been planning this for a long time. How neat. You really think that's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? Holy crap, the Kirk Cameron movies were right. <laughs> that's dumb. That's not going to happen. That's not what, you know, when, the, when Jesus says that the end will come like a thief in the night, like boom, it will happen. He means it will come like a thief in the night. The thief does not call and say, hey, look, I'm going to come rob your house. I'm going to keep robbing you over seven years. And then you can come back and your house will be fine. <coughs> That's just dumb. It's a modern creation. It's not going to happen. Here's why I think the rapture is so popular, to be quite honest. It gives Christians a second chance. Christians are raptured up, and then it gives you seven years of tribulation to turn to Christ. So you can be a greedy jerk now, then after the trumpet... You can join the whatever force and become a Christian. Give me a break. Fred Craddock, who was a, a great preacher, used to say, the reason people spend so much time talking about the second coming is they don't want to deal with the first. Jesus calls us to engage here and now, not to stare at the sky. Next question. Why was Samson commanded not to cut his hair? Was his power really in his hair? Uh, no, uh, it was not in his hair. His hair had nothing to do with it. Um, even though I will confess, I'm old enough that I remember when I was about 18 or 19, John Bon Jovi cut his hair and it made CNN, and he didn't make a good album after that, so who knows? Maybe there's something to do with that. Um, but here's the deal. Samson, in, in ancient Israel, you were commanded, if you were serving the Lord and the Lord only, you would take what was called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow meant that you would not cut your hair. You would not partake of strong drink, which meant wine for them largely. Now, what that meant was that you won, you were basically an outcast. Because in ancient Israel and in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, long hair for, for men was actually considered shameful. All right? So your grandmother's picture of, of, of hair metal Jesus is wrong. I'm sorry. He did not have long flowing locks. And rouge. He did not have either one of those things. All right? You would have had short hair if you were a man. And it was considered rude if you came to someone's house and they offered you some of their, um, how do I put this for you Nazarenes, fermented grape juice. And if you would have turned that down, that would have, was considered rude. But for a Nazarite, you would have had this long hair. You would not have taken any wine. You were, you were not to do that. Because your life was totally and utterly dedicated to God 24-7, you were not ever to engage that. You were essentially an outcast all the time so that you would serve God all the time. Samson was a Nazarite. He was to serve God all the time. I don't have time to get into it, but there's a whole sermon there about 
religion versus faith because how does Samson deal with that? Not well. We sit around and pray all the time, oh God, if you would just give me six-pack abs, I would serve you mightily. No, you wouldn't, right? You'd be doing the same thing Samson was doing, right? Which leads nowhere. It's the way it works. Next question. I'll wrap up here. Can you believe in evolution and be a Christian? Um, short answer, yes. Long answer, it's complicated. And here's why. You're a Christian if you trust in Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. If you believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for you. If you trust in Jesus Christ to save you. If you're loyal to Jesus Christ. That is what marks a Christian. And a lot of people believe in evolution and also trust in Jesus Christ. Now... Let me put this on the record before you Facebook tweet or blog this. I think Darwin was wrong. I'm just saying that people who disagree with me, I'm not willing to say they're not Christians. Is that clear? So do not run out and say, Pastor Matt believes in evolution. That is not what I said. Right? There are people who believe in the rapture that I reluctantly believe are Christians. You do not have to agree with me to be a Christian. This is not a cult, for goodness sakes, regardless of what they say on topics. <laughs> there is a lot of scientific information out there that can lead you to believe in that. I would tell you, I would challenge you, however, that you have to find a way to harmonize that information with Genesis 1 through 3 which I believe is inspired scripture, and you've got to be able to deal with that. When Jesus and Paul talk about Adam, they talk about Adam as a real person who existed, a historical figure, and so you have to deal with that. Now, maybe you can figure that out, how to bring those two into harmony. I haven't yet. If you do, God bless you. But I'm not willing to make that the test of whether or not you're Christian. You believe in evolution. Now, people confuse these all the time, and I'm not sure why, because they're two separate issues. Whether you believe in evolution and whether you believe how old the earth is, those are two different questions, by the way. I believe the earth happens to be billions of years old. I do not think it's 6,000 years old. But that is a different question from whether or not you believe in Darwinian evolution. That's a separate question. I think the fossil evidence is overwhelming that this place is really old. But I don't necessarily believe in evolution as the way Darwin put it forward. But I believe he was right that the earth is really, 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 really old. And there's a thing called the gap theory, which you can Google if you want to look more into that. Next question. Do we have another question? Or is that it? One more? Okay. Why doesn't revolution meet on Sunday mornings? I got that twice. Once from my wife. Um, which, by the way, if you want to have, have a serious question about, if you have any scientific questions, right? I can't even spell scientific. But if you want to have, a, a, if you want to discuss these things from a scientific perspective, my wife is the microbiologist. She's the person you need to ask about this stuff. Um, 
here's why. When we started Revolution in 2008, um, the idea was we had a church locally that helped us start it, and so we promised that when we started, we would not conflict with any of their services because there were people who wanted to do both. Now, we have long since parted from that, from that church for various reasons, but we made that promise, we kept that promise, um, and then when we, tr- when we just talked about moving to mornings, everybody revolted. They said, no, we want to stay on Sunday nights. And it's like, okay, fine. Um, I will tell you it's been a, a bit of frustrating to me uh, as a pastor um, for people to come to me. And this happens all the time. People come to me and say, I still go to such and such church on Sunday morning, but I come here to learn. Okay. <laughs> so you're going to that church on Sunday morning for what reason? The coffee? I don't, under, I don't get it. But, why, you know, okay. Um, I, I get that all the time. I'm not, I'm not sure. Oh, I come to really worship God here, but I still go to that other place. Okay, you know, that's like saying there's this awesome pizza place that we go to on Sunday nights, but before we go there, we go to Little Caesars. <laughs> Whatever, um, I don't understand it, I don't get it, but God bless you all. Um, it irritates me to no um, degree because we have a discipleship program here, we want people to worship, to grow, to serve, but essentially we haven't moved to a Sunday morning service because... You, most of you don't want to. And so that's why we continue to meet on, on, on Sunday nights. We tried a Sunday morning service once, but quite frankly, it was a, how do I say this, half-butt effort. Um, it was, we did not really advertise it for more than a week. Uh, they, the church growth experts say you're supposed to advertise it for 6 to 12 weeks. We did 6 days um, and all that kind of stuff. And so that it didn't really go anywhere. And, and, and so we just continued to do... Sunday night, and we've continued to run Revolution on a shoestring budget. Um, you know, and like I said, I, I've been very open about my frustrations. And one of my frustrations is I get this all the time, even from local pastors. It's so great what you people are doing down there with those people. Okay? It's so great what we're doing with those people. Um, one, you sound like a bigot from the 50s. Two, why aren't you doing it? Right? Now, I'm going to do best I can here to take a deep breath and not get angry, but here's what I have when I've been able to have those conversations with pastors one-on-one. I go to Matthew 25, and this is how I end. Take your blue Bibles and go to Matthew 25. You, you've been a revolution from the beginning. Know these verses by heart. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. The final judgment, that's page 595 in the Blue Bibles. This is Jesus speaking about final judgment. But when the Son of Man comes, that would be Jesus, in his glory, and all the angels with him, angels in the Bible, by the way, are soldiers, carrying swords. Angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered at in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. By the way, if you end up on the left, say, oh, crap. Um, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. Free market. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or a naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go away into eternal life. How you treat the poor is how you treat Jesus Christ. Now, that's not earning your way into heaven. That's people who have already been saved by the Holy Spirit. That's how they express their love and gratitude. And I have sat there with ministers, and I have shown them Matthew 25, and I have walked them through that, and they go, hmm. Hmm is not the correct answer. The correct answer is, how do I get involved? This church is built upon... That we will worship God and God alone through Jesus Christ. That we will grow closer to God through our study of Scripture and through small groups coming together. And we will serve God by serving the poor, the least among these. And if your church does not do that, and by serving the poor, I do not mean a one-year, one-day-a-year program where you go away feeling self-righteous. This is, these Greek words are continuous actions. This is a way of life. If you're not doing that, then according to Scripture, there will come a day when the king himself will say, away from me. You don't really love me. My spirit was never in you. You can call yourself Christians day and night. You can go to church as much as you want to. You can sing songs. You can speak in tongues. You can do all those things but only those who have my spirit dwelling within them will look themselves in the mirror and say, I was nothing, and you saved me. And will look at all those who other people consider nothing and say, how can I save them? You cannot understand the grace of God and turn your nose up at anyone because no one is worthy. And it's only when you go to the least of these and you give them everything because everything has already been given to you as a Christian that you show you are truly saved. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time, for these questions. I hope, Father God, that they have honored you and glorified you. 
I hope and pray, Heavenly Father, that everyone here, your spirit will invade every one of their souls, their hearts, that they will worship you, that they will study your word and grow closer to you. That they will then go and reach out to others, no matter who they are, the prisoner, the sick, the widow, the orphan, the poor. And they will seek to serve them in any way they can out of nothing but love for you and gratitude for your grace. And may we worship you now in response to such overwhelming grace. In Jesus' name, amen.